Welcome to another iGrow season at APC. We're so glad you've tuned in. Our church is blessed with excellent teachers of the Word of God, and our hope is that you find today's teaching enlightening, motivational, and encouraging. To learn more about our church, visit theapc.org or find us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's lesson. you are currently sitting in, there's your first note to take down, it is the miracles of Jesus, and if this is not the one that you signed up for, too bad, you're stuck. So, for the next two weeks, what we are going to do is dive in and take a deeper look into some of the miracles that took place in Jesus' time on earth, and through some very extensive research that I did on Google, I came across a chart by Blue Letter Bible, so if you want to look that up, you can, but it, it gave a list of 37 miracles that took place, and it cited where they took place, but also in what books or where in scripture you can actually find those, and so that's what we will be using for the next two weeks to guide us through this journey. Now, we only have about two hours, roughly, and we're splitting that between two of us, so that gives us about 30 minutes each week, and when you do 37 into four segments, that's roughly nine miracles that we have to cover each, each night, or 18 each night, so probably not going to make it through all of them. We might dive a little deeper into some of them. Then we do some of the other ones, and that's not us trying to say that one is more important than the other, it's just there's a lot there. So, before we dive into our first one, I want to take a moment, and I want to have a little conversation with you guys. My job is to teach and lecture all day, and I don't want to do that here. So we're going to start with conversation and start with a question. And that question is this. What is a miracle to you? So that's open for anybody. What is a miracle? Divine intervention okay. into just the norm. Okay, divine intervention, good. Anybody else? When you hear the word miracle, what comes to mind? The impossible being done. Okay, the impossible being done. Good. Anybody else? Miracle. A highly improbable or extraordinary event. Okay. Good. I like that. According to Webster. We've done some extensive research <laughs> with Brother Google. Alright. Let's hear from our front row. When you hear the word miracle, what comes to mind first? Supernatural. Okay, back row, word miracle, what comes to mind? Go. Jesus. Tell me an example of one, just something. When the word miracle, what comes to mind? Okay, something that you don't normally see every day. When you look at the word miracle by definition, Bruce gave us a good one, I found one that's that 
puts it this way. A surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific law and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency. And when you look into divine, divine means of or from God. Now, I am not intelligent enough to walk around and use everyday lingo like that. So instead, I think we can simplify it or break it down a little bit. And instead, we can say that a miracle is this. A miracle is an event that takes place and changes your life. And it does so in such a way that it cannot be explained using natural or human understanding, meaning that it must be from God. Typically, which I thought I would get a lot of, when we think of what a miracle is, we hear a lot of somebody that didn't have an arm and it grows back. Or somebody who needs a wheelchair to get around and one day is able to miraculously get up and walk by themselves. A blind person being able to see, a deaf person being able to hear, and the list can continue. And while, yes, these are miracles, and they are awesome events to hear about and witness and maybe even be a part of, these are not the only things that can be looked at as or considered a miracle, because God's idea of a miracle is not limited to human expectation. And so another area or another way that you can think of a miracle or in modern day that we see the word miracle thrown around is in a situation where you have a college student that gets that job immediately after graduation that they weren't quite qualified for. Or if you were like me and didn't necessarily do the whole school thing, and so you don't study for that test, but then you get it back and you see that it had a passing grade, you might look down and say, wow, what a miracle similar to most people did, and somebody that didn't go to school miraculously graduated. What a miracle. What a miracle, see? It's just simply something that we can't explain or even put into words by just using our human understanding. And when you truly dive into some of these miracles, on the surf, there's much more than what we see just on the surface level. And you can dive in and actually pull out multiple deeper meanings and multiple different lessons inside of the miracle rather than just what took place. So let's travel to Cana. For you guys, you'll travel to John chapter 2, verse 1. But in our minds, we're going to go to Cana. And John chapter 2 starts off in verse 1 saying, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So here we are with the first miracle by Jesus in his time. And he says, and we can see or take away from this question that he asked, that he may not have necessarily been ready for the people to witness what he was capable of or what he was willing to do in the world. 
But nevertheless, they had run out of wine at this wedding. And when you look at what a wedding was back in this culture, it was not a one-day event like what we have. But their weddings were actually stretched across multiple days. And so it was important that these families or the host families had enough wine to cover all of the days, but also that it was the best of the best wine to cover all of the days. And if they happened to run out, they would actually lose respect in the eyes of the people. And it was looked at as an act of dishonor to your family if you ran out of wine in these parties. And so here we are at a wedding, and the host family has ran out of wine, and Mary goes to Jesus and says, hey, we, we need to step in and do something here. And he questions a little bit and says, eh, it's not really my time yet. And so instead of accepting that answer, she turned to the servants and she said, whatever he has you do, do it. No matter how big, small, or silly you may think the request is, whatever it is that he asks of you to do, just do it. Now, these servants had two options. One, do we just dismiss this crazy lady that came up to us and told us, it's not my wedding, it's not his wedding, but whatever he tells you to do, now you follow him. And you listen to whatever direction he has. Or, they could act in faith. Because they had no clue what was getting ready to take place. They didn't know what the steps that they were getting ready to have to walk through were. And they didn't know what the outcome was going to be because of them. So they had a choice to make. And we see Jesus acting in compassion to this family or sympathy for this family when recognizing that if they go with no wine and they run out of wine this will be this will negatively impact their reputation with the people or I can step in and put my name on it and withhold the reputation that they have so he begins to give direction to the servants we see in verse 6 where he says, There were set there six water pots of stone, and according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece, Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And so they filled them up to the brim. He found six jars of water sitting off to the side, and he picked those. But these weren't just any ordinary jars. They weren't just a flower pot that was being used for decoration or a random vase that was empty that was sitting there. These were the jars that were used in ceremonial washing. So this is where they actually washed their hands and washed their feet in this ceremony. They were not used to drink from. They were dirty, filled with dirty water. So I can only imagine that when those were the pots that he chose, and those were the pots that he directed the servants to go get and to fill up, there was probably a little bit of doubt, and a little bit of question and worry. We're really going to pick the dirty, nasty pots and use that to serve to our guests, or whatever you're getting ready to do. We really want to pick these. But they stepped out in faith, and they followed the instruction that was given to them by Mary, and they followed his direction no matter what it was. 
And if there wasn't any question or doubt when they were told which pots to go get, I'm sure the next step probably raised a couple eyebrows. Because now not only did they, were they asked to fill up these pots, but then they were told to draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Not just some random guest, not just somebody that was there, but to take it to the master of the feast or the master of the ceremony from these dirty pots. But they did it. They stepped out, they drew some from these pots, and they took it to the master of ceremonies. And when you look in verse 10, it says that after he had tried it, he didn't know where it came from because it was so good. And in verse 10, he calls out that this is not typically how this works. Typically, you give the best wine first, and then as that supply goes down and as people begin to drink more and more and more, then you can bring out your lesser wines because you want people to see the best that you have to offer at the beginning. But in this case, you did the opposite, and instead you brought out the best wine at the end. And I'm getting the good stuff now. And this just goes to show that no matter what the picture is that you've painted in your mind on how that situation should play out, or no matter what the picture is on how you may have seen it happen in the past, and so you think that it will happen the same here, that whenever God steps in, whenever he has his hands involved in it, it will be the best drink that you get to taste. It will be the best outcome that you could ever imagine. And sometimes it may even be completely different than what you expected. And then in verse 11, it kind of rounds everything out. And it says, this beginning of signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So through something as small as just providing wine at a wedding in order to retain a family's stature or reputation, he was able to build belief and build faith in the disciples for him. And it's because of that faith that after the wedding they followed him to Jerusalem where they were getting ready to witness what I would call an interesting show. So now we're going to travel to, um, well this one's actually laid out in all four of the Gospels. So you'll find this in John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to start off in John. We're going to stay in chapter 2 and go to verse 13. And it says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers, money, and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So, John starts off by telling us that how they traveled to Jerusalem and when they walked into the temple, what they were witnessing was that they had turned this house of God into a marketplace and it was 
not being used for its intended purpose or what it was put there for. And so we see Jesus get a little mad. And he builds a whip and runs people out. And then he begins to flip tables, which I would love to see take place. Because there's been a couple times playing Monopoly that I've really wanted to send a table. But it talks about zeal, which zeal means a great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. And so unlike the last miracle that we talked about, or the first miracle that he did, where he was acting from a place of compassion, and he was acting in sympathy or empathy for that family, now we get to see him act in anger. And we get to see him act from a place of passion for something. And in verse 17, it says that his disciples remembered that it was written. Well, what were they remembering? His zealous actions caused them to recall what was written in Psalm 69 and 9, where it says, because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Or another way that we can read that is, he's saying, my passion for you, and my passion for your house, consumes me so much that when people insult you, or insult this holy ground, it falls to me. And he took it so personal that he knew he had to step in, and he had to do something about it. Because he saw that people were disrespecting his father's house. And therefore disrespecting who his father was. And that's a place that we need to be at where we ourselves cannot be like these money changers. And we cannot get to a place where the way that we live insults or disrespects the God we serve. And we can't act in a way or a manner in holy ground that belittles what it's actually there for or takes away what the purpose is. And instead, we should live for God with such passion that when we see this happening, we can't help but to step in and do something about it. Now, I'm not saying that at lunch and somebody makes a silly comment and so you flip a table with all their lunch food, but there should be an understanding that you're so passionate about the way that you live and you're so passionate about this word and about the God that you serve that there are just some things that can't be said in front of you. And there are just some actions and conversations that can't take place with you around. And if you go to after he had, so in John, after he had cleansed the temple and pushed everybody out, we get to verse 19 where he's talking to these religious leaders and he tells them, destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. And this is an example that we see in multiple different miracles where he's actually foreshadowing something that has not yet taken place through his action in this scenario or situation. And, and when you look at what, or, um, when you look at this, what he's doing, if you go further in 20 and 21, the disciples actually go back and reference after he resurrects. They remember that this destroyed in three days and lifted back up was mentioned. And so in this place, what he's doing is he's foreshadowing that 
there's a body of Christ. There's a, there's a temple that is getting ready to be destroyed. And three days later will rise back up. And when you look at what Matthew and Mark wrote, we again see the passion from Jesus. And again, he is flipping tables. But what Matthew writes about what happens afterwards is what caught my attention. Because if you look in Matthew chapter 21, verse 14, after he had pushed everybody out and he's flipping these tables and now the temple is cleansed, it says that the blind and the lame came to greet him in the temple and he healed them. It was after the temple had been cleansed. It was after that everything that was wrong taking place in that building was pushed out. That people were able to come in and allow the miraculous to happen in their life. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 6 and 19, it calls our body the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so just like the temple that we're hearing about and reading about right now, we have to allow God to come in and cleanse us of the wrongdoing. We have to allow God to drive out everything that does not fit His picture and His image and His will. And once that takes place, that is when we get to a point where we can begin to see the miraculous happen not only in us, but through us. Now Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about how after all of this took place, and after the healing took place, and, and after people came and listened to Jesus teach after he was able to clean, cleanse the temple, there were some religious leaders that became very fearful of him, and, became, and, and fearful of him because of the reputation that he was building with the people, which was removing their power and their stature in their eyes. And so this is where the plot begins to crucify Jesus. Now, any normal person, knowing that they had just caused an uprising so much that the leaders were trying to figure out how can we get rid of him and kill him, would lay low. But Jesus isn't any normal person, and so he decides to continue to work. But he doesn't go seeking this next miracle out. This one just seems to find him. And as he was passing through Galilee, there was, or more specifically back to Cana where we had seen the first miracle where he turned water into wine, there was a nobleman there, or otherwise we would know them as just an, an important government official, that heard that he had come out of Judea and was back in Galilee, and so he immediately went searching for him. And when he found him, the man asked Jesus to come and heal his son who was on his deathbed. But similar to Mary, this man was met with a question. And so in John chapter 4, verse 48, Jesus asked him, Will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? And so this tells me we have to be very careful that we don't allow ourselves to get to a point where the only way we put our faith or put our trust in God is based on whether we see him act or not. Or whether we ever get to witness his 
power at work. <clears throat> yes, I know that it, it is definitely helpful when you can actually see it taking place to believe that the prayers you're praying are will be answered, but you have you have to be careful not to get to a point where you're solely relying on that. Our, our, our faith our level of faith should not rely just on his actions, but we should put our faith in him because of who he is. But likewise, when he does do a work in our life, we need to use that to not only boost or improve or build upon our faith, but we have to use that as an opportunity to build up those around us. Because after he healed this, the, the man's child, Scripture does not say that because of this happening, the man now believed and put his faith in him, but rather it says in verse 53 that he himself believed and his whole household. And I think it, right here it's good to point out that two of the three we've talked about so far, the initial request did not come from the person in need or the person going through the situation. Now, obviously, in this situation, most parents, I would hope, if their child was dying, would do anything that they could to help their child. But when we look back at the wedding, why did Mary step in? Why was Mary so adamant that Jesus stepped in? And then you look at it, and even though the people in need weren't the one running to him and, and requesting anything, they, they weren't the run, ones running to him, seeking his help, he was still willing and able to step in in both of those situations. So just keep that in mind the next time that you find yourself praying for the person sitting next to you. Or the next time that you know you have a friend or a family member that's going through something and you're praying for them in that situation, understand that even though it's not your situation, that prayer still matters. And those prayers, even though it's not for you, still get heard by God. And through your faith may be what allows that person to get through their situation or get what they need in their life. But we have to, in order to do that, we have to be at a point where we can humble ourselves before him. And we have to understand that these things taking place aren't because of us. It's not because of anything that we can do. But also when it happens, the glory shouldn't go to us. Even if you're the one praying for somebody when whatever healing takes place takes place, we have to make sure that that glory is going where it, does, where it belongs and to who deserves it. So now we'll jump to uh, Luke chapter 5. And at this point in time, we see that Jesus' fame is beginning to grow more and more. 
as word of what is taking place begins to travel out. And so much so to the point that people are literally running to him. No matter where he goes, the moment somebody finds out that he is near, their crowds of people are going to find him. And so in Luke chapter 5, we hear about a crowd of people that surrounded him so much that he looked off and he saw that there was two boats sitting there with nobody in them. And so he gets on one of these boats, and it happened to be Simon's, and he, he tells Simon, push me off and let's go out into the water. And as they get away from the shore and away from the crowd and he gets a little bit of space, he sits in the boat and begins to teach from the boat out in the water. And when he finishes speaking, he tells Simon to take the boat deeper into the sea and find the deeper water and cast his nets. And at first, Simon was a little apprehensive and he questioned what he was being told. And he, 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 was, he replies to Jesus and he says, look, we, we spent all night out here fishing. We were casting our nets all night and we weren't able to, to get anything from it. But after making that statement, Simon decided just to act in faith. And so he took the boat out a little bit further. Because what he's saying and, and what he's understanding is, yes. It might have only been a couple of hours ago that I tried this last and, and I didn't have any success. And I failed. But God is telling me to do this. So clearly, even though I may not understand why, and I may not necessarily even know what's going to happen, I do know he calls him master. My master is directing me. To go this way. And so I have to put my faith in him. And I have to believe that there's a reason he's sending me out here. And so what does Simon do? He takes the boat deeper. And he casts his nets into the very same waters that probably just hours before gave no fish. But this time when he pulls the net, it does not come back empty. And they didn't even come back up with one or Two fish, but verse 6 says they enclosed a great multitude of fish. So they didn't come back empty, and they didn't come back with barely anything. They came back with a multitude or a very large number. So next Simon does what really any person would do, and he signaled to the other boat to come to where they were at and cast their nets there as well. And so the boat did, and when they pulled their nets in, they began to gather so much, so much fish that in verse 7, it says that the boats actually began to sink. And after seeing this and realizing what was taking place, it says that Simon fell to his knees before Jesus. And he began to repent. Because when we see Jesus call us into those deeper waters, and he begins to call us a little deeper than where we are, we have to turn away from everything that we had known or everything that we were before. And when they got back to the shore, it says that they left everything and followed him. That needs to be understood that 
there's some things that you're going to have to leave behind to walk this walk. When you're called by God into those deeper waters, when you're called by God into whatever it is that you feel called to, there's sacrifice that has to be made. There's things that have to be left where you were. These, these were fishermen. This, this was not just a hobby to them. This wasn't just something that they decided one day they had free time, and so they were going to go waste some time out in the sea and do a little bit of fishing. This was their profession. This was their occupation. This was their way of living. But when they got back to shore, they understood that there's something greater that's waiting, so I have to leave everything behind that I ever knew and everything that I once was in order to obtain where he's trying to take me. Awesome. So, how many have actually seen the miracle happen? I've seen two. The scariest thing in my life. It was uh, demons being cast out of two different people, one at General Conference. I was like 12 years old. Scared me to death because we were brand new in church. And then one at the Hayward Church, and to hear this person talking is scary. It was a female sounding more like the deepest voice I've ever heard in my life. So, I was scared, but on the same token, I was like, man, I haven't seen a miracle. I haven't seen a withered hand. I haven't seen you know, somebody get out of a bed. I have been there for years, but I got to see a miracle. So it was kind of awesome. Scary, but awesome. So I know we're talking about quite a few miracles and, and the correlation, but you can correlate pretty much every miracle that Jesus did to today's life. So the healing of the paralyzed man. We've seen this. It happened at Capernaum, and it's in all four Gospels, but I'm going to look really at Luke, and it's in Luke 5, 17 through 26. We see that four men are carrying this paralyzed man, and they can't get into the house where Jesus is at because there's this crowd. And if you really dive in, why was there this big crowd? They really didn't want to see Jesus. They wanted to see what he was going to do because um, he's gaining popularity as each miracle goes on. And these four men decide, you know what, we're going to take whatever we can to get this man healed. So they tear apart the roof, and they lower him down in. And in uh, Luke 5.20, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of different. All the other miracles are just like, here you go, you're healed. Take up this or walk or whatever. But this one here says, your sins are forgiven. Um, which is interesting because he can do the same for us. He really wants to heal us, but he really wants to save us and forgive us of our sins because we all sin and all fall short of the glory of God. And, it's, and I'm so thankful that one day he forgave my sins. We also see here that the Pharisees are actually at this miracle. They're not just hearing about it. They're actually at this miracle. And we see them, they're thinking. They don't even say it out loud. They're thinking in their hearts. You know, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And Jesus replies to him, and he says, uh, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. So he's basically showing them why he didn't say, hey, take up your bed and walk. 
He wants to say, I have authority to forgive you of your sins. Then he tells the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately he stood in front of them, and he took and he took his bed, and he walked, and he started praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe, and they said, hey, man, there was something great that happened here. I don't know what to So, you see the Pharisees? Instead of them actually saying, wow, that's awesome, they started to realize, wait a minute, what is this? Why, why is he able to do this? So they start to question. This is where we really see them start to question him. And it, the, just from each miracle, they started following him around because they, wanted, they don't like what he's doing because this is not the Messiah that they were told about in the Old Testament. So we're going to jump to the infant man being healed, or helpless, or powerless man. This actually happened in Jerusalem, um, and mainly in the book of John. We're going to read about this man by the pool of Bethesda, which, if we know about this pool, it's to where the angel will come down once a year and trouble the waters, and the first person in got healed. And I can imagine that's a mad dash. Me and Bradley be over there fighting why we can't get in, and this guy gets in. I mean, I have this feeling just seeing all these people around. But this guy was at the pool for 38 years. And he sat around trying to get in the pool. But we see in the story that Jesus comes to him and actually says, Hey, you want to be healed? And instead of him saying, sure, or, man, that's awesome, yeah, what do I need to do? He makes excuses. He has no clue who is standing in front of him. He has no idea that this guy has been walking around healing people is the guy. And so he starts making excuses. Hey, I have nobody to put me in the pool. I have nobody to do this. And I kind of think that's what we do today. We come to church every Sunday. And we're in front of the guy. I know I'm just calling him the guy, but it's the guy. And the power is there. And we just kind of come in, we sing our three or four songs, and we walk out, we hear a great message, and we don't change. And we make the excuses, well, you know, there's this, or football's on this Sunday, or can you really heal me because I haven't seen one? And, you know, so we just kind of go on and go on. But Jesus looks at him and says, hey, take up your bed and go. It's that simple. And it's that simple on Sunday mornings, Wednesdays, whatever, Tuesday prayer. It's that simple. If you need a healing, if you need forgiveness, whatever you need, it's there. No matter what. We also see here is where the Jewish leaders really start to plot to kill Jesus. They're really getting tired of it. There's a few reasons why, and we see that in the next miracle. Uh, with the man with the withered hand, uh, which happened in Galilee. This is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to look really at Luke. kind of tells the story a little bit better. And here's the, one of the reasons why that these uh, Pharisees, leaders, whatever you want to call them, on another Sabbath day, 
He went into the synagogue teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. Starts out by saying, on another Sabbath day. In the Old Testament, the law was you couldn't do anything on the Sabbath day. Basically, you sat there. You couldn't do a thing at all. So that's why that the, that the Pharisees started wanting to kill him. is because he was doing things against the law. He heals the man, and the, the Pharisees start questioning him again. And Jesus answers him. Well, he doesn't answer them. He kind of answers him with a question. I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? So he puts it back in their hands. What's wrong? I, I just healed this guy. You're not even worried about that. You're more worried about me breaking the law. And he's basically pointing out to them, I wrote the law. So you're questioning the guy, and he's standing in front of them, and I can see him being real, I'm just going to say it, arrogancy. And he, come on. What's the deal? Why are you so upset about this? Because he keeps doing this on the Sabbath day, and this really angers the Pharisees. And this is when they decide, it's time. We've got to kill this man. He's doing stuff, and these people are starting to follow him, and they're starting to see this. And if he's breaking the law, they're going to start breaking the same law. So we see that Jesus not only starts healing people, but he starts making fun of the Pharisees, telling them these guys that know the law in and out, don't really know the true meaning of the law. Then we jump down to the blind and dumb uh, demonic man healed, which happened in Galilee. If you notice, a lot of his healings are happening in the same areas, Galilee, Capernaum, uh, places like that. And this happened in Matthew and Luke. Uh, but Matthew 12, 22 through 24, very short. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him, so that he could both talk and see. Verse 23, all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? So they're looking back, knowing what they're looking at. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only Beelzebub, or the devil, the prince of demons, that his followers, the fellow uh, drives out demons. And Jesus basically, in this response, you know, people are astonished, but he's like, can a devil drive out a devil? No. So the Pharisees still accuse him, but they're blind at what is really happening in front of them. And if you look in today's world, the same thing has happened. God is moving through the whole universe. Healings are happening. People are getting baptized. But we still have people in the world today going, is that really the case? That's really what we're looking at. So we're not much different than what they were back then. I know I've always thought, man, if I was back then, I wouldn't have done that. Is that true? Because we have the same opportunities today. And what are we doing with them? Are we... The crowd being astonished... Are we the crowd being in the way? Or are we the Pharisees going, hmm, can that really happen? 
I think we need to decide which one we are and not be the crowd in the way and just be following Jesus, going, ah, you know, it's, it's another thing, showing up on Sunday, taking up space. Not be the Pharisees saying, ah, I don't really believe that can happen. But be more like the crowd that needs something and going to Jesus and saying, I know you can. You know, let me be that faith that makes me heal. Then we slide down to the Sea of Galilee, where the storm was, uh, where Jesus calmed the storm. It happens in Matthew, Luke, and Mark. And Jesus was asleep. I'm sorry, I got it. It's on there. So there's this huge storm going on. And the Hebrews back then, they were really scared of the sea because it was chaos. So it's kind of like our life, chaos, where there's so many things going on, and Jesus is asleep. It's not even bothering him. And in Matthew 8, 26, Jesus asked, why are you feel fearful? And asked him, oh, ye of little faith. They were afraid because the sea represented that chaos that they've always been going through. And it was chaos governed by God. In Psalms 95, 5, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So when we're going through our chaos, when we're nervous about everything, he's already been through it. He's already helped. He's already done that. He's been there. So you don't have to be scared. You don't have to run in and go, Jesus, where are you at? Where are you at? Why are you sleeping in my need? He's not asleep. He just wants to make sure that you come to him. Instead of going to the doctors, I'm not preaching against doctors, but instead of doing different things, you go to him first. Because he's the one that created everything. Oh, sorry. All right. Jesus in this verse actually showed that his jurisdiction was over the sea, the chaos, and what he governed, which is everything. And it's the same way with us. He governs everything. Even if we don't want him to govern, guess what? He's already doing it. He's already done it. So we need to make sure that we're letting him govern those things. We're taking everything to him. The next miracle we see happened at, I think it's pronounced Godard, Goddard, G-O-D-A-R-D. I don't know how you pronounce all this. And it was uh, the demons cast out of the man. This really happened to Matthew and Mark. But Mark tells a story pretty interesting. Um, Jesus comes to the shore. And the man was full of demons. And it's kind of funny. If you've seen a demon-possessed person, they do some crazy stuff. They're not afraid of anything. They do some really weird stuff. But this man runs to Jesus. And that was interesting about one, both of the times I've seen demons cast out. The people actually went to the altar. And it was kind of confusing. Why would the devil not only show up to church, but show up and go start praying at the altar? He knows what's going to happen because all these stories right here. Um, the time at Hayworth, person actually was praying at the altar and started talking back 
It was Josh Carson who preached. And just amazingly, Josh looked at the demon and said, what are you doing? Why did you come up here? You, you have nothing here. And just taunting the devil. And that's what Jesus is doing. Is he's taunting the devil. And he gets down in and boom, sends him out into the swine. And the swine, he, the, the devil couldn't affect the man, but he took all these swine and they jumped into the sea and died and killed themselves. And we see the man sitting and clothed and in his right mind. So God can take the worst circumstance in the world and he can sit there and go, that's nothing to me. And have you sitting there clothed in your right mind and praising him right next to him like nothing ever happened. And I'm so thankful that he can do that. Uh, the next miracle is Jairus or Jairus, however you pronounce it. Uh, daughter was raised to life. And this happened at Capernaum. And it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Luke tells a story that Jairus was a ruler in the synagogue. So we're taking an important person. We don't only just take you know, people who don't need anything, but we take people who need things. We take rich, we take poor. And uh, Jairus comes up and bows at Jesus, which should have never happened. But he did it. And he asked, hey, can you heal my daughter? She's sick. She's dying. I don't think she's going to make it. And so Jesus goes to Jairus' house. Now he was delayed by another miracle. We'll get to that in a second. But he goes to, to the house. And there's mourners there. Back then they used to pay mourners to come in and cry and whine and all this stuff. And Jesus confronts the mourners and says, she's just asleep. What, what are you doing? And they laugh in his face. It's kind of funny that that's how we, not we, but that's how things act today, is Jesus is doing all these things, but people are like, mm, I don't have time for church, it's kind of boring, it's kind of funny, and whatever. But Jesus is still standing there going, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. We can do things, and we can worry about other things, and worry about this, but Jesus is still going, it's just asleep. It's wake up. It's not a big deal. So he touches the dead body, which is another law that Jesus breaks, because you're not supposed to touch, touch dead bodies according to the Old Testament law. And once again, Jesus shows that he can do anything. He's done all these miracles of healing of, of the hand, of healing of demons. Now he's taken a dead person and raised them to life. And this is where it's really getting serious because the Pharisees definitely don't like this. Because now we show he can do anything and everything in front of them. They do not care for this at all. So now they're really starting to plot, hey, let's kill him. Let's, let's get rid of him. Um, the reason why the girl died was that Jesus paused. And the reason why he paused is there was another healing that happened on the way or near Capernaum. 
And that was the woman with the issue of blood. And this happened in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's like all the Gospels, except for John. He does some things, but it's really Matthew, Mark, and Luke do a lot of these uh, discussing what happened. But the woman had an issue of blood, which Pastor preached on this, so I can't really go into too much other than what he already went into. Uh, but she had an issue of blood for 12 years. And she had tried all the physicians, she had tried everything, and she finally made up her mind, I've had enough. I've got to get to Jesus. I've got to. All these people are in my way. I don't care. I've got to get to Jesus. And it kind of, this miracle kind of reminds me of myself, not the issue of blood, but I was out of church for almost 12 years, and I finally said, enough. I've had enough. I broke down. I walked down the middle aisle, and I said, this is it. God, you've got to do something. I didn't care who was in my way. I walked down that center aisle and made it to about the front pews, and I just, this broke. And I'm so thankful for this miracle, because yes, it's about the issue of blood, but it's also about when I decided, when we decide, it's time, no more. Enough is enough. I've got to have Jesus more than anything in my life. Because Jesus knows what we need. He's waiting for us to decide that that's what I need. And if you need something tonight, Sunday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever day it is, you need to push through the crowd and make up your mind, this is what I need. I need Jesus more than anything in my life. I need him now. And he will be right there for me. I'm here. I'm here the whole time. So I'm so thankful for that. And I'm so thankful that he is there for us. I'm so thankful that he steps in no matter what our needs are and says, I'm here. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. you know, he's here for each one of us. And I'm so thankful for that.